Iowa Republicans today hold the first nominating contest in the party's presidential race. It's Monday, January 15th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, dangerously cold temperatures are expected to dampen turnout for tonight's Iowa caucuses. Also this hour. Being captive for 100 days, put aside the physical traumas and physical abuse. Mentally, it's, it may break people. The families of Israeli hostages captured by Hamas reflect on their loved ones as the conflict surpasses the 100-day mark. And this hour, Guatemala's president is sworn in despite opponents' efforts to stop it. Plus, why recycled shipping containers might not make the best building materials. Mostly sunny with highs around freezing today. It's 7.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. It's caucus day in Iowa, the unofficial start of the 2024 presidential election process. Participants will gather tonight to discuss who should be the Republican nominee. Polls suggest former President Donald Trump holds a commanding lead over former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, the current governor of Florida. NPR's Don Gagne has more from Des Moines. It does feel like a battle for second place, and and more than anything, it's DeSantis who needs second place because he has poured so much into Iowa. And if he should finish third, you'd really hear calls for him to drop out. Haley has New Hampshire coming up next, where she has actually polled well, uh, second place, but, but well, and she really wants to set up a showdown with former President Trump there. NPR's Don Gagne. As freezing temperatures arrive this week, the Mexican border city of Matamoros is hosting hundreds of migrants in open-air encampments by the Rio Grande. Texas Public Radio's Pablo De La Rosa has more. Felicia Rangel Semprano, co-founder of the Sidewalk School for Children Asylum Seekers, says this year will bring a new challenge after the Department of Homeland Security increased the daily appointments for asylum seekers on its mobile app in May. Apart from those already waiting on appointments, there are now migrants without appointments living on the international bridges, hoping to take a vacated spot. Those are the people who've been out on that bridge for two days, four days, five days. And if they leave that spot and the officer decided, okay, now I have space, but you went to the bathroom or you went to get something to eat, you missed it, which has happened before. Semprano has set up space heaters on the bridges and provided blankets for migrants amid the freezing temperatures. I'm Pablo de la Rosa in McAllen. United Nations agencies are warning the risk of famine in Gaza is growing, that more aid must be delivered or people risk dying of hunger just miles from trucks filled with food. NPR's Ava Traore reports. They're urging Israel to open a port and more border crossings into Gaza so life-saving aid can reach people in need. They say more aid also needs to flow through existing Israeli border checks, and there must be guarantees of safety for people accessing and distributing aid in Gaza. Only two border crossings are currently open for aid, aid that the entire population relies on due to the war. But before aid can get into Gaza, trucks are unloaded and reloaded as part of a strict and time-consuming process that Israel says is needed for security. UNICEF projects that in the next few weeks, the most life-threatening form of child malnutrition, known as child wasting, will affect up to 10,000 children in Gaza. Aya Batrawi, NPR News, Tel Aviv. This is NPR News in Washington. 
The Hollywood Awards season gets underway tonight with Blackish star Anthony Anderson hosting the Emmys. As NPR's Elizabeth Blair reports, hosting these shows can be a challenge. Comedian Joe Coy pretty much bombed his opening monologue at the Golden Globes last week, but colleagues like Whoopi Goldberg and Kevin Hart came to his defense. Former Oscar host Steve Martin congratulated Coy for taking on, quote, the toughest gig in show business. The Globes audience didn't really know Coy, even though he's a star in stand-up. Author and comedian Viv Grosskop says it'll be easier for Anthony Anderson at the Emmy because he comes from TV. The more the audience in the room has an idea of what you might do and what attitude you might have to them, the more easily you can mold them into being the kind of room that you want. Anderson told The Hollywood Reporter that being a host of one of these shows is about taking jabs at your friends. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. It's Martin Luther King Jr. Day, a federal holiday to honor the slain civil rights leader. President Biden is observing the day by volunteering at a food bank in Philadelphia. Pennsylvania is expected to be a key battleground in the presidential election. Vice President Kamala Harris will observe the holiday in Columbia, South Carolina. She's to join members of the NAACP in an event that includes a prayer service and a march to the statehouse. Harris is expected to urge black voters to support Democrats in the 2024 election, saying they will protect the rights of all Americans. I'm Nora Rahm, NPR News in Washington. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. The National Labor Relations Board will hear complaints tomorrow against Trader Joe's by the union representing workers at the company's store in Hadley, Massachusetts. Karen Brown reports. The complaints against Trader Joe's include several allegations of retaliation for union activism. But union spokesperson Meg Yosef says the union is hoping for two remedies in particular, reinstating an employee the union says was improperly fired and boosting a retirement plan that is considered less generous for union workers than for non-union. She says getting this far with the labor board took a lot of effort. The fact that the NLRB found merit in our charges is, I think, in itself a victory. The Hadley store was the first Trader Joe's to unionize in July 2022, and recently some workers have started an effort to decertify the union. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Karen Brown. A Maine historical society is working to rebuild several historic fishing shacks that washed away this weekend. The three buildings were lost during record high tides in the Portland area. The fishing shacks on Willard Beach date back to the 1800s. The South Portland Historical Society is now looking to raise money to rebuild the structures. Celebrations will take place across Boston today in honor of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. That includes the 54th annual Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Breakfast. Political and community leaders, including Governor Maura Healey and Mayor Wu, are expected to attend. Organizers call the breakfast the longest-running celebration of its kind in the country. It's 7.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation. For nearly a century, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. More at mott.org. The Bruins will host the New Jersey Devils for an afternoon game. Puck drops at 1 p.m. The Celtics are back on the road today, this time in Toronto. They take on the Raptors at 7.30. Mostly sunny and breezy today with high temperatures right around freezing. Tonight, clouds move in and temperatures dip into the mid-20s. Tomorrow 
mostly cloudy with a high in the mid-30s. There's a good chance of snow beginning in the morning. That might be mixed with rain into the afternoon and evening. Up to an inch of accumulation is possible. It's 22 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin in Washington, D.C. And I'm Martinez in Los Angeles, California. Iowa is at the center of attention in U.S. politics. Yeah, tonight, Iowa Republicans hold the first nominating contest in the party's presidential race. The favorite in that race, Donald Trump, is also the clear favorite to win the Iowa caucuses. But some rivals to the former president have been campaigning hard, even as temperatures in Iowa have plunged below zero. NPR national political correspondent Don Gagne is in Iowa. We have defrosted him. Him so he can join us today, Don. The forecast calls for what below zero degrees all day in Des Moines. So what's that feel like, and how's it affecting the race? Oh, you are being so optimistic on the temperature. As we speak, it is minus 16, wind chill minus 33. Uh, Here's the good news. We don't expect any snow today. At caucus time, it'll be five below plus wind chill. Uh, Candidates have been talking about it, knowing that the weather could play a role in the results. So let's listen to some sound from a recent day on the trail this week. Here's Nikki Haley, Donald Trump Jr., and then you'll hear Ron DeSantis. It's going to be so cold. Like, I don't even know what negative 15 is. I understand it's going to be minus four, but if I can get my Florida butt back up here. Zero degrees, negative 10, negative 20. But you know what? Okay, so, you know, we, we don't know how many voters will actually show up. These are dangerous conditions. Uh, we don't know what the roads are going to look like everywhere. But I do have to say some voters, when you talk to them, are really committed, like Bryce Musgrove. I met him at that DeSantis event. Might the weather affect whether or not you actually caucus? No, probably not. You'll we're, get out. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're used to it in Iowa, so that's important enough. We'll get out. You're used to 15 below? Uh, I don't know whether you ever get used to it, but (laughs) you can tolerate it for short periods of time. Wow. All right. You know, Don, not that long ago, I spent a few days driving from Sioux County to Des Moines, and almost everyone I spoke to was, for the most part, all in on Donald Trump. Is that what you're hearing, too? Uh, That's what the polls show us, certainly. And it's really easy to find people who are extremely enthusiastic about about Trump running again. But you can find people who are not voting for Trump. Uh, You find them at rallies for DeSantis and Haley, and they'll tell you lots of reasons why they can't back Trump. But when you press them about what they'll do if Trump is the nominee come November, most say, yeah, they'd be with him over Joe Biden. Now, if Trump wins, it would seem to be a close battle for runner-up between Haley and DeSantis. Uh, How would they position themselves in the contest's final days? So Haley says Trump was the right president at the right time, but electing him again would just bring chaos. DeSantis says you can like Trump, but you can't deny that if he is the nominee, then the election is going to be all about January 6th and criminal charges and that that plays into Democrats' hands. And, you know, and for Donald Trump, it seems like his main battle, Don, is not necessarily with the other candidates, but against his own expectations. So then what's in it for everyone else? Well, it does feel like a battle for second place. And, and more than anything, 
it's DeSantis who needs second place because he has poured so much into Iowa. And if he should finish third, you'd really hear calls for him to drop out. Haley has New Hampshire coming up next, where she has actually polled well, uh, second place, but, but well. And she really wants to set up a showdown with former President Trump there. That's NPR's Don Gagne. Thanks for braving the cold, Don. It will do. The U.S. hit more Houthi targets this weekend after American and British forces struck over a dozen locations in Yemen last week. The strikes, the U.S. says, are aimed at protecting shipping lanes in the Red Sea. For weeks, the Houthis, a Yemeni armed group that controls swaths of the country, have been attacking commercial ships in the Red Sea. The Houthi says the attacks are a response to Israel's bombardment of Gaza. In the face of U.S. and U.K. strikes on Yemen, the Houthis vowed to retaliate. And this is all raising concern that the israel Hamas war is spilling over. Meanwhile, Yemen is in the midst of its own civil war, with the Houthis on one side of that conflict. To discuss what this all means for Yemen and the region, we're joined by Ahmed Naji from Aden in Yemen. He's the senior Yemen analyst for the International Crisis Group, which works to prevent and resolve deadly conflict. Thank you for joining us, Ahmed. Thank you for having me. I want to start with how Yemenis are reacting to these strikes by the U.S. and the U.K. in reaction to what the Houthis have been doing? Yeah, first of all, we have this type of uh, massive solidarity, of course, with what's going on uh, in Gaza. People feel that, yeah, I mean, what's going on is like uh, uh, something um, concerning because of the, um, you know, continuation of the um, um, military operations coming from the Israeli side. So we have this type of um, resentment among local communities. But on the other side, uh, the Houthis are you know, using this type of resentment to send different messages, um, uh, showing that they are uh, capable to uh, do something for the Palestinians, not just to use words, as, as many other countries are doing or many other uh, armed groups. Uh, and from, other, from 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 some some uh, perspectives, uh, the Houthis are also benefiting a lot on the local levels because um, supporting Gaza or supporting Palestinian cause uh, give them a lots of of uh, positive impact mm. on the local and regional level. Yeah. So, how much of what the Houthis are doing in the Red Sea is really about the Palestinians, and how much is it is it is it about its own um, interests and uh, trying to get support? Yeah, well, for, for, from the Houthi uh, perspective, they, they, I mean, the main motive is linking everything happening in the Red Sea with what's happening in Gaza. And they always say that if there's de-escalation in Gaza, we're going to de-escalate in the Red Sea. Uh, but we know from, you know, the local, uh, from, you know, on the local level that the Houthis are putting themselves in the <coughs> position that they are the representative of Yemen. And of course, they are trying to, you know, on the long term, use this matter to uh, help them to expand to different areas, including the areas that are controlled by the internationally recognized government. No. So here's the point. I mean, they are they are overlapping. I mean, the two things are 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 connected to each other. Now, the U.S. and the U.K. said these strikes are aimed at degrading the military capability of the Houthis to get them to stop what they're doing in the Red Sea. Uh, in your view, will that work? Uh, look, I mean, the airstrikes are symbolic. I'm not sure if they are 
uh, impactful in terms of the um, you know destroying the healthy military capabilities because we have seen the Saudi the Saudi-led coalition military operations uh, um, targeting the Houthis for around um, seven eight years, and what we saw on the ground the Houthis are getting. Uh, stronger and stronger, and this is because of the many, many things, but uh, part of it is that the Houthis have this type of tactics to develop or to uh, use any sort of grievances, victimization, to recruit more people, which eventually turn them to be the most powerful group in the country. So, in my perspective, what's going on um, will not, uh, you know, uh, put the Houthis in a position where they decide to uh, step back uh, on the country. Maybe we can see more escalations from the Houthi side. And this is what happened last night. Hmm. Now, you're, uh, meanwhile, Yemen is uh, trying to end a civil war that's ravaged the country for years. There's currently a fragile that's truce. True. But with the Houthis attacking ships in the Red Sea, being attacked by strikes, does all this change anything with, this attempts, with these attempts to stop the civil uh, war? Of course, it will. It will. I mean, what's happening in the Red Sea will have a huge impact on the current political process uh, between the Saudis and Houthis. Mainly, and the UN is trying to expand this type of process to be more inclusive with the Yemeni local parties. Uh, I think with what's going on now, we can see frozen uh, political uh, uh, negotiation, meaning that uh, uh, many. Many international actors will see that what's happening in the Red Sea should be included in any sort of political arrangements. So I don't think um, there will be any sort of success when it comes to political process in the future. Ahmed At least, you know, in the coming in the coming days. Mm. Ahmed Naji is senior a senior analyst for Yemen at the International Crisis Group, and he joins us from Aden in Yemen. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. The American Red Cross has declared an emergency blood shortage. Coming out of the holidays, there was much more need for blood at hospitals than there were donations coming in. That's Dr. Eric Gary, executive physician director for the Red Cross. Every week, the American Red Cross collects about 84,000 blood donations and 21,000 platelets from volunteer blood donors. But we have estimated that in order to shore up the need at hospitals, we would need to collect an extra 8,000 blood donors each week in January. Gary warns severe winter weather and seasonal illnesses may worsen the shortage, but even small changes in donor turnout can make a big difference. When donors give blood, they might be able to save a life of a child with cancer or a newborn baby or somebody having a big surgery or an accident victim. He says the number of people donating blood has dropped by about 40 percent over the last two decades. That's due in part to the pandemic when lockdowns resulted in fewer blood drives. Now, there are a few basic requirements for donating. you got to be at least 16 in most states, weigh at least 110 pounds, and be in good health and feeling well. And the best way to donate blood is to register to participate in a blood drive or to go to a donation center. In case you're wondering, Gary is walking the talk. I am going to donate blood before the end of January. Layla, what about you? Plan to give blood? Well, now I am. I didn't know about this shortage, although for a long time I couldn't give blood because I was borderline anemic, so I wasn't allowed. Oh, well, first time I gave blood, I fainted. 
I still get <laughs> You didn't get the juice box? No, I didn't. I forgot. And I fainted. I wouldn't have been able to drink it anyway. I was fainted. <laughs> <laughs> This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your week with 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, over the weekend, Taiwan elected a president who has vowed to protect its independence from China. We'll get reaction from China and from the U.S. It's 720. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. I'm Vipal Fernandez. Schools across the country have until September to spend the remaining federal pandemic relief aid, and many have used that money to address student homelessness and rising absenteeism. We'll hear about how one program in San Diego is preparing for those funds to run out. Next time, here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. A mix of sun and clouds today. Highs will be in the low 30s. Tonight it grows overcast and falls to the mid-20s. There's a slight chance of snow. Then snow is likely tomorrow morning, and that might be mixed with rain in the afternoon. Highs will be in the mid-30s. More snow possible Tuesday night. Less than an inch of accumulation is expected in all. It's 22 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From Imaginable Futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at ImaginableFutures.com. From Cigna Healthcare, a health benefits provider that advocates for better health through every stage of life. Learn more at Cigna.com. And from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at LodestarFoundation.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Steve Inskeep. The writer Michelle Norris has spent many years encouraging uncomfortable conversations. Michelle is a former NPR News host whose work included an acclaimed series on this program. Michelle's here, and Michelle, you know what to do with a microphone. Tell people what the project <laughs> Hello, was. Steve. The project is the Race Card Project. I ask people to share their thoughts on race and identity in just six words, mm -hmm. and you'd be amazed at what people can pack into just six words. My name is Delisha Dent. I am 17 years old. My six words are, segregation should not determine our future. My name is Alex Segura. And my six words are, no, really, where are you from? My name is Alicia O'Brien, and my six words are, Mexican white girl doesn't speak Spanish. My name is Mark A. Quarles, and my six words are, with kids, I'm dad, alone, thug. That last voice was of a tall black man who felt that people perceived him one way when he walked down the street with his family, and another way when they saw him alone. Across a decade, Michelle Norris collected thousands of these stories and put them in the book Our Hidden Conversations, What Americans Really Think About Race and Identity. I'm Tracy Hart from Washington, D.C., and my six words are, yes, I'm tobacco-picking white trash. One of many white people who wrote to Michelle Norris. 
almost every year, vast majority of these years, the majority of the cards have come from white Americans or white people elsewhere in the world. Hmm. And that was not, Steve, that was not what I expected. I'm an African-American woman. I understand how our conversations about race are usually by, for, and about people of color. They're usually led by people of color. They're usually focused on people of color. So when I put the basket on the table, I thought that most of the cards would come from people of color and probably mainly black people. All kinds of people pulled up. When I read some of these six-word stories, some of them are a decade old now, and yet they all feel like they're this year, last year. Then he died in our alley. Black, but I don't fear police. There's a story um, from Kristen Moorhead, and her six words were, I wish he was a girl. And when mm. she sent in that story, she sent in a picture of she and her son. They're sitting on a bus together, and he's a preteen. So I've tracked them over time. And of course, she didn't wish that she had a little girl. She loves her son, right? But in the wake of all these police shootings, and particularly the night that she saw the grainy footage of Tamir Rice, who was shot in Ohio because police thought he had a gun and was, it turned out to be a toy. She was so hurt that evening and so frustrated. She didn't want her son to hear her crying. So she goes to the computer and she lets out the almost like a silent scream by typing in those six words, I wish he was a girl. Mm. And I talked to her years later. And now Che, when, when I talked to her, he was um, 18. He's now, and that was, that was almost two years ago. So now he's off in college. He moves around the world, and he walks into the 7-Eleven near his high school, and he always is like saying hello and, and being super friendly so no one sees him as a threat. And he's telling her how he handles himself, how he comports himself out in the world. And I'm watching her face just fall, that this kid, this nerdy, really super smart, classical music-playing kid can't fully be himself in the world because he's always worried about what someone else will think about him. Do these stories ever make you despair? They hit my heart pretty hard. This has been an emotional journey for me. You know, to go into the inbox every day, people serve up all kinds of emotions. They serve up their fears and their anxieties and their anger and their angst. And sometimes their triumph and sometimes their humor. And someone sent in, uh, underneath, we all taste like chicken. <laughs> you know, which was the, the, the laugh I needed at, you know, a moment, total non-issue when the aliens arrive. I appreciate when people send things like that in. Have the conversations that you've taken in changed because of the politics of the country in the last several years as things have grown darker and more divided? Oh, absolutely. I liken this work of collecting these six-word stories to dendrochronology, the study of tree rings. If you cut down a tree, the tree rings will tell you a story. They will tell you a story about the surrounding environment. Mm. You will know what happened. The in... year there was a hurricane or yes, a drought. exactly. You will know humans' impact on that because of the chemicals that they introduced or the new foundation of a building that's too close to the tree and it affected the root system. The tree will tell a story and the tree never lies. In some way, this archive of human experience is a social tree ring during a period of time that is bookended by the presidencies of Barack Obama and Donald Trump, followed by a global pandemic, by economic tumult, by climate change, by the murder of George Floyd, by the conflict in Gaza right now. I mean, all of these things are reflected in some way 
They're writing about their kids. They're writing about their commute. They're writing about what it's like to go to a church that feels like it's more divided right now. They're writing about, gosh, I used to live in a community that looked one way and now it doesn't. They write about how the lunchroom is smelly because new immigration patterns have meant that people are bringing new things in their lunchbox. I mean, literally. And so you see things and it can almost be in some ways a bellwether. So in the lead up to the election in 2016, about four or five years ahead of that, we started to see the word invisible more and more in the inbox. Hmm. And we always saw the word invisible, but it was usually attached to women of color saying they felt invisible. A lot of Asian people saying that they felt invisible. Suddenly, we were seeing more white people and particularly white men saying that they felt invisible in their own country, that they were living in a country that they didn't understand, that they were living in a country that felt like it looked past them. And that was interesting because that was sort of the beginning for me of understanding something that was happening out in the world that I could see through numbers and statistics and demographic change, but it's very different when you're actually hearing someone talk about the job that they felt that they didn't get or the community that they feel like they don't understand anymore or a change that feels scarier is creating a kind of vertigo for them. Our friend Michelle Norris is the author of Our Hidden Conversations, What Americans Really Think About Race and Identity. Thanks for coming back by. It's been great to be with you, Steve. Miss you. Miss you too. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition. We go to Iowa to hear how some of the youngest people participating in the Republican caucuses today feel about the state's first-in-the-nation tradition. It's 7.29. If you're working on your fitness in the new year, join us at City Space on Monday, January 29th for a boxing night. It'll feature strength training and shadow boxing paired with hip-hop and house music. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash event. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lexus Broadway in Boston, presenting Girl from the North Country, playing in Boston this March. Written and directed by Connor McPherson, this new musical reimagines the songs of Bob Dylan, including Forever Young, Slow Train Coming, Like a Rolling Stone, and Make You Feel My Love. More at LexusBroadwayInBoston.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Below zero temperatures are forecast for tonight's Iowa caucuses. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley are hoping for strong showings against Republican frontrunner and former President Donald Trump. Seattle is one of the places where it's very cold. The intensity of it is really pretty eye-opening. It's, I think, a matter of life and death. That's Felicia Grant with the Salvation Army, which is encouraging people to use warming centers and temporary shelters. Utilities in the Pacific Northwest are urging customers to conserve energy amid the extreme cold. A natural gas storage facility in Washington state was forced to shut down for several hours over the weekend. John Ryan with member station KUOW has more. When the gas storage facility shut down, pipeline operators sent an emergency message to customers urging immediate action to use less gas. They said the Northwest's main gas pipeline was emptying at a rapid rate as frigid weather boosted demand. 
Utilities in Washington and Oregon then asked customers to turn down their thermostats and use less power. On Sunday, several utilities told their customers they could resume normal energy use. But Washington's biggest utility is still urging conservation. Puget Sound Energy says it will keep doing so as long as the region's weather stays unusually cold. For NPR News, I'm John Ryan in Seattle. This is NPR News. This is WBWAR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston's murder rate hit a historic low last year. The Suffolk District Attorney's Office reports 37 homicides in 2023. There have been arrests in 24 of the cases so far. Suffolk DA Kevin Hayden credited law enforcement and the mayor's office in helping with the arrests. Hayden also noted a reduction in shootings in the city year over year. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration confirms 2023 was the hottest year ever recorded on the planet. An analysis of the data shows Massachusetts tied a 2012 record for its warmest year. As WBUR's Sharon Brody reports, the state averaged 2.5 degrees Fahrenheit above normal. UMass Amherst climate researcher Michael Rollins says after he analyzed the data, one thought loomed large. 2023 is going to be looked at as a wake-up call when the global average temperatures really shot up to quite a level that was unexpected. Rollins points out that warmer Pacific Ocean temperatures from El Nino are expected to cool off this year, but he says he's concerned about the possibility that air temperatures could remain high. That's going to be a sign that maybe we're underestimating the amount of warming we're experiencing as a result of our human activities. Rollins says increasing carbon dioxide levels are driving the warming. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Sharon Brody. Many services around Boston are closed today in observance of Martin Luther King Jr. Day. That includes all municipal buildings, including City Hall. Parking is free around the city for the day. The T's subway and buses are running on a Saturday schedule. The commuter rail and ferry are on a weekday schedule. It's 733. WBUR supporters include Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com. The Bruins host the New Jersey Devils for an afternoon game at the Garden that gets underway at 1 p.m. The Celtics are playing on the road in Toronto tonight. The team will face off against the Raptors at 7.30. A mostly sunny day today will have highs around freezing. More clouds move in tonight as temperatures fall to the mid-20s. A slight chance of snow overnight and a good chance of snow throughout the day tomorrow. Highs Tuesday will be in the mid-30s and the snow may be mixed with rain in the afternoon and evening. Less than an inch of accumulation is expected. It's 22 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday. With AI at the core of its system, Workday is committed to delivering continuous innovation to help teams stay agile. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. 
And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. Taiwan chose a new president-elect and legislature this past weekend in an election China was closely watching. That's because China sees self-ruled Taiwan as Chinese territory and one day hopes to control the island. And it snubbed Taiwan today by poaching one of Taiwan's few remaining diplomatic allies, the island nation of Nauru. With us is NPR's Emily Fang, who is in Taipei and reporting on this closely. Hi, Emily. Hey, good morning, Leila. Good morning. So tell us more about this diplomatic switch. Nauru is a tiny Pacific island. Why were China and Taiwan competing over it? Because Taiwan and China see themselves as competing governments who believe they have the rightful uh, the right to govern over the same territory. Mm. The rest of the world, including the U.S., by the way, recognizes China, however, as a country rather than Taiwan. And now that China's poached Nauru, Taiwan only has 12 allies in the world, including the Vatican, which recognized Taiwan as a country. Mm -hmm. And it's a sign of how successful China has been in leveraging its larger economic might and diplomatic weight to build influence in the Pacific region. And this timing, you know, the first working day after Taiwan's elections is a pretty humiliating blow for Taiwan. Taiwan's foreign ministry said China poaching Nauru was very sudden. They said it was, quote, revenge against democratic values, basically punishment for holding elections. They said Nauru had come to them demanding an amount of money to keep ties that Taipei just really could not afford. Mm. And they insinuated China might have paid quite a bit to buy diplomatic ties from Nauru, which is an allegation that China's foreign ministry refused to comment on today. Okay, moving from diplomacy, are there any signs that China plans on increasing its military intimidation of Taiwan because it's unhappy about the outcome of the election? So far, no. And this is interesting. The rhetoric from Beijing has been quite muted this time around, in line with what they usually put out every time Taiwan has elections. And a part of this is China seems to be trying to patch up its relationship with the U.S., which has been warning China not to threaten Taiwan over these elections. And in fact, today, there's a U.S. delegation of current and former officials visiting Taipei, which is a further sign of China to not try anything. Mm. And another big reason behind this restraint is Beijing might actually see the Taiwan elections as playing in their favor. The Taiwanese president-elect only won about 40% of the popular vote. His party, which Beijing strongly dislikes, lost their legislative majority. Here's Taiwan's new president-elect Lai Qingde speaking on election night. He acknowledged that he did not win a majority because he did not work hard enough, and he's going to have to incorporate the policies of his opponents, meaning you know, work with them. Translating from this political speak, this means there is going to be political gridlock on things like Taiwan's budget and defense policy, and all of those delays could benefit Beijing. So what's the mood in Taiwan with this political drama swirling around? It's pretty calm. I mean, mm. despite this drama, this was a really smooth election. All the votes were counted accurately and quickly. The opponents conceded rapidly, and Taiwan's now getting back to business after a month of campaigning. But we're looking at a very, very long lame duck period. The inauguration for the president-elect is, is in late May, and a lot could happen before then. That's NPR's Emily Fang in Taipei, Taiwan. Thank you, Emily. Thanks, Leila. It's been 100 days since 240 people were taken hostage by Hamas. A little less than half of those have been released. Omri Moran is not one of them. We spoke to his brother-in-law, Moshe Levy, who was in Washington last week to meet with congressional leadership and other officials to advocate for their release. Omri is 46 years old. He's a shiatsu therapist and a gardener in Kibbutz Nachalos. 
So we love to say that he heals plants during the day and during the evenings he heals people in the clinic. What do you love most about him? I love how he, he was able to build a home and create a family for my sister. I love the, the way he was able to bring calmness and, and love to wherever he went. When I met Moshe, I asked him to recount the story of his brother-in-law's capture and the rescue of his sister, Lishai, and their two daughters. The attack started at 6.30 a.m. with the sirens, uh, the red little sirens. So they went immediately to the safe room. They spent a few hours there. Electricity went off and they didn't charge their phone. So they told us that they're losing battery and they may not be able to communicate with us. Moshe has told this story many times by now, and sitting a few feet across from him, I couldn't help but notice the pain he was going through, describing all the horrible details. When he finished, I asked him if it ever gets any easier to remember. No, I think it only becomes harder. Um, sorry. Um, I've been telling this story since the first week of, of the conflict. It just becomes harder when you, you speak in community events and rallies and to reporters because you, you just keep living the experience um, and you remember new things all the time. But it's important to keep sharing it because we know that first we have to keep it on the public mind. Policymakers need to understand that this is the first issue they need to address. And second, we know for a fact that Omri learned that Lishai and the girls survived the attacks. He didn't know that. Just because my sister was interviewing to an Israeli TV station, that interview was caught in Gaza, and Omri was able to get uh, information about that interview. And I'm sure it gave him hope that he needs to continue and surviving. We know that five weeks ago he was alive from one of the hostages who was released. We keep believing he's alive and we'll keep advocate until he's home. 100 days since Omri was taken captive, what does that number mean to you? That number means to me that we are failing to bring them home. We are failing to emphasize how important it is to prioritize this above everything else. And that there is a sense of urgency right now that needs to be amplified everywhere by everyone beyond the political discourse that is sadly very toxic everywhere in the world nowadays. Um, because it's a humanitarian plea, humanitarian issue, multinational, multi-faith. Taking hostages is an attack on humanity, in my opinion. Considering that's been over a month since you last heard anything about your brother-in-law, what's the biggest concern you have, not just for him, but for all the people that are hostages right now? I try to believe that Omri is fine, but being captive for 100 days mentally already, let's put aside the physical traumas and physical abuse. Mentally, it's, it's, it may break people, even those who are strong like Omri, but everyone can break in captivity. That's Moshe Levy. His brother-in-law, Omri Moran, is being held captive by Hamas. Uh, Moshe, thank you very much uh, for sharing your story again. Thank you. This is NPR News. 
The first votes of the 2024 presidential election will be cast in Iowa today. Listen tonight at 8 for live special coverage of the Iowa Republican Caucus on 90.9 WBUR. Get closer to the issues, get closer to your vote. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, over the weekend in Israel, Gaza, and around the world, people marked 100 days of fighting since the October 7th Hamas attacks with no end to the conflict in sight. Partly cloudy and low 30s today. It falls to the mid-20s tonight, and we may see a little snow overnight. Snow is likely tomorrow, and highs in the mid-30s mean it might be mixed with rain in the afternoon. We're expected to get up to an inch of accumulation in Boston. Central Mass may see up to the 3 inches. It's 22 degrees in Boston. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Feldman Geospatial, committed to helping Boston build right from the ground up since 1946 and working to build community with Jazz Night, presenting live music weekly at the Long Live Brewery and Tap Room in Boston. Learn more at longlivebeerworks.com Boston. Amtrak is one step closer to bringing high-speed trains to the Northeast. Amtrak officials tell the New York Times that trains have passed testing and may start test runs between Washington, D.C. and Boston. The new trains are expected to be 10 miles faster than the old fleet. There's no set date for when the trains will be fully in service. A popular bar and bookstore in New Hampshire is set to close. Book and Bar in Portsmouth will close at the end of this month after 12 years in business. Owners have not said what's behind the decision to close. A popular seafood restaurant on Newbury Street is temporarily closing. Salty Girl will be closed for renovations until the end of this month. Restaurant owners say the entire interior will be redone. It's 744. comes from this station and from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm A. Martinez. Iowa has gone first in the presidential primary season for a long time, over half a century. But for Iowa's youngest voters, this longtime historic political tradition is still very new. NPR's Elena Moore covers new voters and is here now to talk about what to expect from young Republicans caucusing tonight. Elena, so what will this first presidential matchup look like for Iowa's youngest voters? I mean, much like the larger Republican voter base, they're kind of on the Trump train. I talked to former Iowa State Representative Joe Mitchell about all this. He's 26 and leads the organization Run Gen Z, which focuses on getting young Republicans to run for office. And, you know, he told me a he plans to caucus for Trump. Trump has courted young conservatives and young Republicans better and more than any other candidate in the race. And you can see that in his polling numbers and in front of the other candidates that are obviously younger than him, much younger. 
that he still performs that much better. And, you know, to Mitchell's point, the former president is really dominating in Iowa polls. And nationally, he's actually doing pretty well with young Republicans specifically. A recent New York Times Siena College poll found that more than six in 10 Republican primary voters, 29 and under, said they're supporting Trump. All right. So it sounds like momentum for Trump around young Republican voters. Will that translate, though, to Gen Z and millennial voters showing up to caucus for him? I mean, candidates definitely understand this group has potential. Trump and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley showed up to run Gen Z's annual conference this month in Iowa. And of course, you know, businessman Vivek Ramaswamy is very much online. He's got a pretty big TikTok account. But truthfully, though, it's really hard for anybody to go out and caucus, especially young people. Um, I talked to Democratic strategist Tom Bonier about this. It's like the perfect storm of low turnout conditions in terms of the different types of elections we offer in this country. You know, he told me typically the folks who turn out are just older and caucuses do attract lower numbers compared to traditional primary elections. Plus, it's just an unconventional system to get behind. You know, a member from each campaign does a speech, you write down your vote and they're tallied up. It's also just less flexible. There's no earlier mail voting. You have to show up in person at 7 p.m. on a Monday. So it's all around <laughs> a bad combo for new and young voters. Bad combo, but it's a longstanding tradition, right? The right. uh, thing is, though, Democrats did ditch it this year. So mm -hmm. is this potentially the last year for the Iowa caucus? I mean, it may be an old system, A, but some newer voters, like Run Gen Z's Mitchell, who, like I said, is 26, say they're still kind of into it. I wouldn't say the caucuses are outdated. You know, being able to have some discourse and some true organic grassroots people that are speaking on your behalf, I think, is a good thing. And, you know, like I said, Mitchell plans to caucus for Trump. He's excited about Trump. He thinks Trump is going to secure the nomination pretty quickly. And, you know, he's looking forward for the former president to start making a nationwide appeal to young voters like himself. All right. That's NPR's Elena Moore, who covers new voters. Elena, thanks. Thank you. This is NPR News. Thanks for starting your week with WBUR. Coming up at 820 on WBUR's Morning Edition, how Colorado is using a new tax on sugary soda drinks to help provide healthy food to low-income families. It's 749. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA, with Tammy Wen's nature and history-inspired paintings in a show the Globe calls stunningly successful. Closes soon. ICABoston.org. My name is Robin Inman. Think about what your values are and what's important to you in the big picture and therefore what you hope you can leave as a legacy. Learn more about planned giving at WBUR.org legacy. The people who entertain us, the world in all its wonder, the ideas that spark creativity, joy and inspiration every day on All Things Considered from NPR News. From 4 to 6.30 on WBUR. 
Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. Iowa Republicans today cast the first votes in the party's presidential race amid sub-zero temperatures. Officials say a missile fired by Houthi rebels at a U.S. warship in the Red Sea was shot down by a U.S. fighter jet. And federal officials are accusing Texas of preventing the rescue of three migrants who drowned in the Rio Grande. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, and proud sponsor of The Heart of New England, the new IMAX film now showing at the Museum of Science, Boston. Low 30s and mostly sunny today, mid-20s and overcast tonight with snow starting after midnight, mid-30s tomorrow, and snow is likely. It might be mixed with rain in the afternoon. We may get up to an inch in Boston, up to three inches to the north and west. It's 22 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. Shipping containers may seem like the perfect sustainable construction material. They're strong, they come in a standardized size and shape, and there are thousands of them sitting empty in ports across the country. But NPR's Chloe Veltman reports structures made from the ubiquitous steel boxes are not necessarily eco-friendly. The Ether Clothing Store in San Francisco's Hayes Valley neighborhood attracts people who want to buy high-end athleisure wear in monochrome hues, delivered via a steampunky conveyor belt system. And also those curious about its architecture. Amy Anderson works at the store. She says it's a magnet for passers-by. When they see it from across the park, they've got to come in and just check it out and just feel how big it is. Made out of three shipping containers asymmetrically stacked, the Ether store is part of a two-block retail development called Proxy. There's a coffee shop, an artisanal ceramics business and a beer garden. Those are also all fashioned from shipping containers. Brings a vibe of sustainability within the neighborhood too. When you think about a typical shipping container building, you're probably thinking of something like Proxy or Photoville in New York City, which transforms containers into mini art galleries, or Monarch Village, a development for formerly unhoused people in Lawrence, Kansas. Douglas Burnham is the founder of the architecture firm Envelope, which created Proxy. Shipping containers are great for building with because they are modular, movable, and durable. Containers are also an attractive alternative to traditional construction materials like cement. How cement is manufactured produces the world's third highest level of planet-warming pollution. And there's also wood, which of course requires cutting down trees and growing them again. Meanwhile, containers can be found stacked in their thousands in ports across the country. At the port of Oakland, California, on a recent morning, giant pterodactyl-like cranes pluck shipping containers from a stack by the shore and delicately drop them onto cargo vessels bound for Asia. Susan Ransom manages relationships with ocean carriers, truckers and customers for one of the port's four marine terminals. Right now we have probably about 6,000 imports, maybe about 5,000 exports. She's talking about the number of containers moving into and out of the terminal right now. And then we have a lot of empties here too. And what's that number? Uh, I think today we're at about 11,000. 11,000 empty containers lying around in just one terminal of just one port. 
when you consider the fact this is one of roughly 360 commercial ports just in the US, that translates into millions of idle containers. A veritable trove for Adatola and Giuseppe Lignano. The Italian architects got into the shipping container building game in the 1990s, about a decade after these types of buildings first started appearing. Here they are in the new documentary about their work. We start with the things we find. The old idea of using what's around you. Their New York-based firm Lotex Projects includes an experimental art school in New Orleans for people of colour and an affordable housing complex in inner-city Johannesburg, South Africa, complete with swimming pool. Tolla says she and Lignano favour containers that are between 10 and 15 years old, both for sustainability reasons and because they like their hip, dilapidated look. Beauty can be found in things that might look ugly. But here's the thing. The vast majority of people in the market for an office, public facility or home made out of shipping containers don't buy them heavily used, because doing so doesn't make financial sense. Alex Roskin is the CEO of Connex West, a nationwide shipping container supplier. When you're building a $100,000, $200,000 structure, that one to $2,000 price difference between a new container and a used container is not really significant anymore, and most customers will just opt for the new one. Roskin says most customers only buy old containers to build basic structures like storage units, and new or nearly new containers come with additional benefits. They don't have the dents, they don't have the rust. Also, some municipalities, like Los Angeles, won't allow the use of containers that are damaged, that have been previously repaired, and that are more than two years old. If you're using a one-time use container, then that container would be put to better use transporting goods across seas and oceans, which is the purpose it's meant to serve. In her YouTube video series, architect and construction technology expert Belinda Carr lists the reasons why shipping container buildings might not be so sustainable. The idea that you are saving the environment when you use shipping containers and that it's a highly sustainable practice. I understand if you're using something meant for the landfill, but if you are using a brand new shipping container, what's the point? Carr says another challenge is how difficult it is to heat and cool these metal boxes. Brooklyn, New York restaurateur Joe Carroll commissioned and lived in an eye-catching shipping container home designed by Ada Tolla and Giuseppe Lignano for five years. Carroll says he appreciated many things about the architect's approach, but his energy bills were sky high. There was no thermal heat or solar. We didn't have any of that in the home. Critics say the most environmentally friendly use of all these unused steel shipping containers is to recycle them into studs to construct regular buildings. Chloe Veltman, NPR News, San Francisco. Okay, this is your official warning. Valentine's Day is one month away. And while that might seem far in the future, now is actually the perfect time to start making those dinner reservations and reach out to your local flower shop. Valentine's Day is the busiest holiday of the year for florists, and things will sell out. Amber Flack is the owner of Little Acre Flowers in Washington, D.C. The sooner you can place your order, the better off you're going to be, the more options you're going to have to choose from. Flack recommends going with locally sourced options if you can. They're just better for the environment. There's a lower carbon footprint to obtain them and they're going to last longer than flowers that have been imported. Which means you may have to go without the most popular Valentine's Day option, roses, because they aren't growing in a lot of colder climates right now, Flex says, but there are other options. Tulips stand for love in the Victorian language of flowers, 
So actually is a pretty suitable replacement. We start pre-ordering Valentine's items before Christmas. Jeff Day has owned and operated the Old Town Florist in Portland, Oregon, with his wife Wendy Day for nearly four decades. He says if you have to wait, at least order your flowers a week in advance. If you wait the last day, you might end up at Safeway or Kroger's or somewhere else and grabbing a quick last-minute arrangement. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but mm. Day emphasizes that receiving a bouquet still means <laughs> a lot to people. I think it shows that you went the extra mile, you made a call, you purchased something, you had it hand-delivered to their door. So now that we've planted this seed in your mind, don't let it wither away. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Martinez. We'll have temperatures only around freezing today under skies with a mix of sun and clouds. Mid-20s tonight and overcast with snow possible overnight. Mid-30s tomorrow with snow likely and it may be mixed with rain in the afternoon and evening. We may get up to an inch on the Cape. One to two inches are possible in Boston. Areas to the north and west may see up to three inches. It's 23 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. GOP candidates for president are pleading with voters to brave sub-zero temperatures tonight to participate in the Iowa Republican Caucus. It's Monday, January 15th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, people around the world this weekend marked 100 days of fighting since the October 7th Hamas attacks. Hamas continues to retain significant military capacity, but Israel has made a dent in it. Also this hour, Texas officials are denying accusations that the state National Guard prevented the rescue of three migrants who drowned as they tried to cross the Rio Grande. Plus, Boulder, Colorado is using soda tax revenues to provide fresh fruits and vegetables to low-income families. And on this Martin Luther King Jr. Day, some people question whether one day of service a year is enough to honor Dr. King's legacy. Mostly sunny and around freezing today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. The Iowa caucuses are tonight the first test of the candidates running for the GOP nomination for president. Voters will head to schools, churches, and community centers to discuss who it should be. Polls indicate that former President Donald Trump is well ahead of the other candidates. Iowa Public Radio's Sheila Brummer spoke with a caucus captain in Sioux City. Dwayne Brown says he has backed former President Trump since day one and doesn't think bitter cold will keep supporters away from the Iowa caucuses. The National Weather Service expects sub-zero temperatures and wind chills as people head to precinct sites. I think we'll have a big turnout. Basically, the fate of the nation hangs on this. Brown lives in the northwest Iowa community of Sioux City, one of the most conservative spots in the state. He says the country can't afford four more years of the current president, and voters want someone who can fix inflation and the southern border. For NPR News, I'm Sheila Brummer, Sioux City, Iowa. Yesterday was the 100th day of the Israel-Hamas war. It began with a Hamas attack on Israel, which killed 1,200 people. 
The Gaza Health Ministry says more than 24,000 people have been killed in Gaza in Israeli military operations. Almost the entire population has been displaced, and very little aid is getting in. Another concern is that the conflict is spreading. NPR's Lauren Frere reports from Tel Aviv. Israel's been trading fire over its northern border, too, with militants based in Lebanon. Two Israelis were killed yesterday when an anti-tank missile hit their home in that border region. And the conflict is also spilling over into global sports, actually. An Israeli soccer player who plays professionally in Turkey was briefly detained there after he displayed a wristband with the words 100 days and a Star of David on it. NPR's Lauren Freyer. A U.S. delegation of current and former officials is visiting Taipei today after the weekend's presidential election in Taiwan. The visit is seen as a clear signal from the U.S. to China to keep the peace in the Taiwan Strait. NPR's Emily Fang has more from Taipei. The delegation included the U.S.'s former National Security Advisor Stephen Hadley and former Deputy Secretary of State James Steinberg. They were joined by the head chair of the U.S.'s de facto embassy in Taipei, Laura Rosenberger. They'll meet with Taiwanese officials this week, including Taiwan's new president-elect, Lai Tsingde. The visit is significant because the U.S. is Taiwan's most important security guarantor, and the new president will need to maintain good relations with Washington. Over the weekend, the U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken also sent his congratulations to Lai for winning the election. Analysts say that the arrival of the delegation sends a clear signal to China. Beijing has demanded Washington not to have official contact with Taiwan's new president-elect. Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei, Taiwan. This is NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. There's snow on the way for Greater Boston. A winter storm is set to move into the region this evening. The National Weather Service meteorologist Frank Nocera says precipitation will continue through tomorrow with a mix of rain and snow. From Providence, Boston, northwest, it looks like all snow, not a major event. One to three inches of snow from most places, maybe a few places close to four inches, but enough to impact travel tomorrow as people head back to work and school. No, Sarah says the snow is likely to stick around with temperatures hovering at freezing the next few days. Meteorologists are predicting more snow for the end of the week. Federal investigators are working to determine the cause of a deadly plane crash in Greenfield this weekend. State police say all three passengers were killed in the small plane crash yesterday morning. Two men and one woman were aboard the aircraft. A lifelike sculpture of a person fishing off the corner of Old Corner Bookstore in downtown Boston has been removed. Fire officials tell the Boston Globe they took down the installation after someone reported it to them. The piece was part of the new Winter Active Art Experience. Those in charge of the display say they hope the sculpture can be reinstalled. Events honoring the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. will take place across Greater Boston today. The celebration will kick off this morning at the 54th annual Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Breakfast. Boston University will also host a joint event with the city. King received his doctorate of theology there in 1955. It's 8.05. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Auschwitz, not long ago, not far away with over 700 artifacts from the Holocaust, opens this March in Boston. TheAuschwitzExhibition.com.
The Bruins will skate with the Devils at home this afternoon. The game against New Jersey gets underway at 1 p.m. The Celtics are back on the road, this time in Canada. They'll take on the Toronto Raptors at 7.30. And a quick recap of your forecast. Mostly sunny and breezy today with high temperatures right around freezing. Tonight, clouds move in and temperatures dip into the mid-20s. The snow likely starts overnight. It's expected to last throughout the day tomorrow and may be mixed with rain in the afternoon. One to two inches are expected in Boston. Less than an inch on the Cape, up to three inches is possible in Central Mass. It's 23 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at AECF.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin in Washington, D.C. And I'm Martinez in Los Angeles, California. Iowa is at the center of attention in U.S. politics. Yeah, tonight, Iowa Republicans hold the first nominating contest in the party's presidential race. The favorite in that race, Donald Trump, is also the clear favorite to win the Iowa caucuses. But some rivals to the former president have been campaigning hard, even as temperatures in Iowa have plunged below zero. NPR national political correspondent Don Gagne is in Iowa. We have defrosted him so he can join us today. Don, the forecast calls for, what, below zero degrees all day in Des Moines. So what's that feel like and how's it affecting the race? Oh, you are being so optimistic on the temperature. As we speak, it is minus 16, wind chill minus 33. Uh, Here's the good news. We don't expect any snow today. At caucus time, it'll be five below plus wind chill. Uh, Candidates have been talking about it, knowing that the weather could play a role in the results. So let's listen to some sound from a recent day on the trail this week. Here's Nikki Haley, Donald Trump Jr., and then you'll hear Ron DeSantis. It's going to be so cold. Like, I don't even know what negative 15 is. I understand it's going to be minus four, but if I can get my Florida butt back up here. Amen. Zero degrees, negative 10, negative 20. But you know what? Okay, so, you know, we, we don't know how many voters will actually show up. These are dangerous conditions. Uh, we don't know what the roads are going to look like everywhere. But I do have to say some voters, when you talk to them, are really committed, like Bryce Musgrove. I met him at that DeSantis event. Might the weather affect whether or not you actually caucus? No, probably not. You'll we're, get out. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're used to it in Iowa, so that's important enough. We'll get out. You're used to 15 below? Uh, I don't know whether you ever get used to it, but (laughs) you can tolerate it for short periods of time. Wow. All right. You know, Don, not that long ago, I spent a few days driving from Sioux County to Des Moines, and almost everyone I spoke to was, for the most part, all in on Donald Trump. Is that what you're hearing, too? 
Uh, that's what the polls show us, certainly, and it's really easy to find people who are extremely enthusiastic about about Trump running again. But you can find people who are not voting for Trump. Uh, you find them at rallies for DeSantis and Haley, and they'll tell you lots of reasons why they can't back Trump. But when you press them about what they'll do if Trump is the nominee come November, most say, yeah, they'd be with him over Joe Biden. Now, if Trump wins, it would seem to be a close battle for runner-up between Haley and DeSantis. Uh, how they position themselves in the contest's final days? So Haley says Trump was the right president at the right time, but electing him again would just bring chaos. DeSantis says you can like Trump, but you can't deny that if he is the nominee, then the election's going to be all about January 6th and criminal charges, and that that plays into Democrats' hands. And you know, and for Donald Trump, it seems like his main battle, Don, is not necessarily with the other candidates, but against his own expectations. So then what's in it for everyone else? Well, it does feel like a battle for second place, and, and more than anything, it's DeSantis who needs second place because he has poured so much into Iowa. And if he should finish third, you'd really hear calls for him to drop out. Haley has New Hampshire coming up next, where she has actually polled well, uh, second place, but, but well. And she really wants to set up a showdown with former President Trump there. That's NPR's Don Gagne. Thanks for braving the cold, Don. It will do. The U.S. hit more Houthi targets this weekend after American and British forces struck over a dozen locations in Yemen last week. The strikes, the U.S. said, are aimed at protecting shipping lanes in the Red Sea. For weeks, the Houthis, a Yemeni-armed group that controls swaths of the country, have been attacking commercial ships in the Red Sea. The Houthis say the attacks are a response to Israel's bombardment of Gaza. In the face of U.S. and U.K. strikes on Yemen, the Houthis vowed to retaliate. And this is all raising concern that the Israel-Hamas war is spilling over. Meanwhile, Yemen is in the midst of its own civil war, with the Houthis on one side of that conflict. To discuss what this all means for Yemen and the region, we're joined by Ahmed Naji from Aden in Yemen. He's the senior Yemen analyst for the International Crisis Group, which works to prevent and resolve deadly conflict. Thank you for joining us, Ahmed. Thank you for having me. I want to start with how Yemenis are reacting to these strikes by the U.S. and the U.K. in reaction to what the Houthis have been doing? Yeah, first of all, we have this type of uh, massive solidarity, of course, with what's going on uh, in Gaza. People feel that, yeah, I mean, what's going on is like uh, uh, something um, concerning because of the, um, you know, continuation of the military operations coming from the Israeli side. So we have this type of um, resentment among local communities. But on the other side, uh, the Houthis are using this type of resentment to send different messages, um, uh, showing that they are uh, capable to uh, do something for the Palestinians, not just to use words, as, as many other countries are doing or many other uh, armed groups. Uh, and from, other, from 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 some some uh, perspectives, uh, the Houthis are also benefiting a lot on the local levels because um, supporting Gaza or supporting Palestinian cause uh, give them a lots of of uh, positive impact mm. on the local and regional level. Yeah. So, how much of what the Houthis are doing in the Red Sea is really about the Palestinians, and how much is it is it is it about its own um, interests and uh, trying to get support? 
Yeah, well, for, for, from the Houthi uh, perspective, they, they, I mean, the main motive is linking everything happening in the Red Sea with what's happening in Gaza. And they always say that if there's de-escalation in Gaza, we're going to de-escalate in the Red Sea. Uh, but we know from, you know, the local, uh, from, you know, on the local level that the Houthis are putting themselves in the position that they are the representative of Yemen. And of course, they are trying to, you know, on the long term, use this matter to uh, help them to expand to different areas, including the areas that are controlled by the internationally recognized government. So here's the point. I mean, they are they are overlapping. I mean, the two things are 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 connected to each other. Now, the U.S. and the U.K. said these strikes are aimed at degrading the military capability of the Houthis to get them to stop what they're doing in the Red Sea. Uh, in your view, will that work? Uh, look, I mean, the airstrikes are symbolic. I'm not sure if they are uh, impactful in terms of the, um, you know, destroying the healthy military capabilities because we have seen the Saudi-led Saudi coalition military operations uh, um, targeting the Houthis for around um, seven, eight years. And what we saw on the ground, the Houthis are getting uh, stronger and stronger, and this is because of the many, many things, but the part of it is that the Houthis have this type of tactics to develop or to uh, use any sort of grievances, victimization, to recruit more people, which eventually turn them to be the most powerful group in the country. So, in my perspective, what's going on, um, will not, uh, you know, uh, put the Houthis in a position where they decide to uh, step back uh, on the country. Maybe we can see more escalations from the Houthi side. And this is what happened last night. Hmm. Now, you're, uh, meanwhile, Yemen is uh, trying to end a civil war that's ravaged the country for years. It's currently a fragile that's truce. True. But with the Houthis attacking ships in the Red Sea, being attacked by strikes, does all this change anything with this attempts, with these attempts to stop the civil war? Of course, it will. It will. I mean, what's happening in the Red Sea will have a huge impact on the current political process uh, between the Saudis and Houthis. Mainly, and the UN is trying to expand this type of process to be more inclusive with the Yemeni local parties. Uh, I think with what's going on now, we can see frozen uh, political uh, uh, negotiation, meaning that uh, uh, many many international actors will see that what's happening in the Red Sea should be included in any sort of political arrangements. So I don't think um, there will be any sort of success when it comes to political process in the future, at least, you know, in the coming, in the coming days. Ahmed Naji is senior analyst for Yemen at the International Crisis Group, and he joined us from Aden in Yemen. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. The American Red Cross has declared an emergency blood shortage. Coming out of the holidays, there was much more need for blood at hospitals than there were donations coming in. That's Dr. Eric Gary, executive physician director for the Red Cross. Every week, the American Red Cross collects about 84,000 blood donations and 21,000 platelets from volunteer blood donors. But we have estimated that in order to shore up the need at hospitals, we would need to collect an extra 8,000 blood donors each week in January. Gary warns severe winter weather and seasonal illnesses may worsen the shortage, but even small changes in donor turnout can make a big difference. 
when donors give blood, they might be able to save a life of a child with cancer or a newborn baby or somebody having a big surgery or an accident victim. He says the number of people donating blood has dropped by about 40 percent over the last two decades. That's due in part to the pandemic when lockdowns resulted in fewer blood drives. Now, there are a few basic requirements for donating. you got to be at least 16 in most states, weigh at least 110 pounds, and be in good health and feeling well. And the best way to donate blood is to register to participate in a blood drive or to go to a donation center. In case you're wondering, Gary is walking the talk. I am going to donate blood before the end of January. Layla, what about you? Plan to give blood? Well, now I am. I didn't know about this shortage. Although for a long time, I couldn't give blood because I was borderline anemic, so I wasn't allowed. Oh, well, first time I gave blood, I fainted. I still give blood. <laughs> you didn't get the juice box? No, I didn't. I forgot. And I fainted. I wouldn't have been able to drink it anyway. I was fainted. <laughs> This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your week with 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, federal officials are accusing the Texas National Guard of preventing Border Patrol agents from rescuing three migrants drowning in the Rio Grande. Texas officials deny the claim. It's 819. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. WBUR supporters include Boston Children's Museum, where you can play, pretend, explore, dream, and discover this winter. BostonChildrensMuseum.org. I'm Vipa Fernandez. Schools across the country have until September to spend the remaining federal pandemic relief aid, and many have used that money to address student homelessness and rising absenteeism. We'll hear about how one program in San Diego is preparing for those funds to run out. Next time, here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. A mix of sun and clouds today. Highs will be in the low 30s. Tonight it grows overcast and falls to the mid-20s. There's a slight chance of snow after midnight. Then snow is likely tomorrow. It might be mixed with rain in the afternoon. Highs will be in the mid-30s. Boston may say may see 1 to 2 inches. Less than an inch is expected for the Cape. Areas north and west of the city may see up to 3 inches of accumulation. It's 23 degrees in Boston. Former WBUR anchor Jack Lepiars returns to city space as Jacques Z. Whipper for two shows on January 26th and 27th. They'll blend circus and stand-up comedy. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Deloitte. Unlocking innovation takes more than AI or cloud. It takes outcome-focused application, too. Learn more at Deloitte.com slash U.S. slash Engineering Advantage. From the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. 
More information is available at aecf.org. From the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, dedicated to improving the learning experience for America's students by sharing what works in pre-K through 12 education at edutopia.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station, It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Leila Falden. There's a simple reason why a lot of people don't buy fruits and vegetables. They're expensive. In Boulder, Colorado, the local health department decided to address that very old problem in a new way. It uses money from the local soda tax to give low-income families coupons for fresh produce. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin went to see how it works. It is a chilly evening outside the Boulder Public Library. The sun is getting lower, and inside, past a spiral staircase, a small crowd begins to file into a meeting room. This is a distribution of coupons for the Boulder Fruit and Veg Program, run by County Health Department staff, including Rachel Arndt. So participants in the program come to the library. They fill out a survey and they check in. This whole thing started about 10 years ago. The health department already had lots of programs to boost federal food benefits like SNAP. And we really noticed that there were still a lot of folks that were kind of falling through the cracks. Often they didn't qualify for SNAP because of their immigration status or because they made a little too much money, but they still couldn't afford fresh produce. Their surveys found that most people knew they should be eating produce. They didn't need nutrition or cooking classes. They needed money to buy more fruits and vegetables. It was an access problem, not a knowledge problem. So we started the fruit and veg program in 2019 after we had passed the Boulder Sugary Drink Tax. A few years in, the program serves about 580 families, both in Boulder proper and neighboring Longmont. Most families are of mixed immigration status. Every three months, recipients come to a distribution, like this one at the library, and get their coupons about the size of a checkbook. And who prints these? We do. Yep. So you have to, like, design, print. So the Boulder one. That's Amelia Holbert, also with the Boulder Health Department. I've snatched her attention as she manages a steady stream of folks coming over for their coupons. A family of two gets $40 a month. Families of four and up get $80. They can be used pretty much anywhere you can buy fresh produce, from big grocery stores to farm stands. Okay, thank you. Thank you. The busiest person in the room is Ana Karina Casas Ibarra. My title is Community Development Access Coordinator. She works for the main community partner, El Centro Amistad. Over the course of the evening, she checks in lots of people. And when folks are missing, she calls them and reminds them to come in. On Tuesday, there was a huge line out the door. And they're willing to come in the cold and the snow for $80 a month of fruits and veggies, which, you know, it tells you a lot. Like, people are struggling. She knows these coupons can make a difference. She's even seen that in her own family. A few years ago, her mom found out she was pre-diabetic. Then she enrolled in the Boulder Fruit and Veg Program. She started making changes, and she started eating not only more, but different kinds of veggies. And she was able to change all of that. She says her mom lost 20 pounds. She's not pre-diabetic anymore. It had a dramatic impact. Casas Ibarra says her mom and the rest of their family, they're from a village in central Mexico. People who come from where I come from, 
you know, they know how to cook from scratch. What is missing is that access to the variety of fruits and veggies. Just as the sun begins to set. Hi. I'm Maribel. Oh. That's Maribel Martinez. She's 34 and works in a restaurant. Her son is named Ivan. I ask him for his favorite fruit or vegetable. Grapes. That's it. Grapes. They're so good. When Ivan was younger, Martinez was on a federal food program called WIC. When he turned five, she no longer qualified. Then she heard from her neighbor, Casas Ibarra, about this program. And after two years on the wait list, she was able to sign up. It definitely helps, like, monthly, because especially with prices right now. Boulder Fruit and Veg is typical of what are known as nutrition incentive programs, says Jim Krieger, a professor at the University of Washington. He says there have been a lot of studies. And they all pretty much show that people who get the nutrition incentives will buy more and will consume more fruits and vegetables, so they work. That's certainly true in Boulder. The health department tracks every coupon they hand out via a serial number, and people use them. In the third quarter of 2023 in Longmont, 97 percent of the coupons were redeemed. 97, that's a very high number. That's very good. Nutrition incentive programs are pretty widespread across the country, and many use federal funding through the Farm Bill. What's less common is using local soda tax revenue. Krieger thinks there's something kind of poetic about that. And he says many recipients who've talked to researchers in interviews think so, too. They get a real kick out of knowing it's funded by sugary drink taxes because they say, wow, so you're turning the sugar that caused my diabetes into fruits and vegetables for me. That is really cool. You can see that soda tax in a Boulder supermarket called King Supers. Maribel Martinez, Ivan's mom, shows me a pack of 12 cans of Dr. Pepper. See, like, these are $9. And if you go outside of uh, Boulder, like Lafayette, they're 5 bucks. The local tax is $0.02 cents per fluid ounce, which works out to $2.88 for that 12-pack. But Martinez is not here for soda. She has her booklet of fruit and veg coupons. She grabs oranges, a pineapple, baby carrots, some greens. Her cart is pretty full. My son loves grapes, as you know. <laughs> we'll grab some grapes. In the checkout line, a clerk rings everything up, $51, including a pack of tortillas, which she can't use the coupons for. Martinez carefully counts out nine coupons worth $45 and then pays $6 in cash. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that's it. So two big bags full of groceries and you only had to pay like $6 out of pocket? Yes. She has seven coupons left over for the rest of the month. She has no doubt she'll be using them. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News, Boulder. Support for NPR health coverage comes from Procter & Gamble, maker of z Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 8.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition, why some people say an annual day of service isn't enough to honor the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. It's 8.29.
A new Texas law going into effect soon will ban rules guaranteeing water breaks for outdoor workers. A lot of folks have asked me, how could it be that there aren't actual laws guaranteeing people the right to come off of a scaffold and get a drink of water? I'm Elsa Chang, why Texans are pushing for federal standards that protect workers from the heat. On All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again to 90.9 WBUR at the end of your day today. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Extreme cold is getting much of the attention ahead of tonight's Iowa caucuses. The National Weather Service says temperatures will likely remain below zero throughout the day there. That's on top of heavy snow that fell over the weekend during blizzard conditions. Crews are still working to clear snow and ice from roads and sidewalks there. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley are hoping for strong showings in Iowa as they seek the Republican presidential nomination. Former President Donald Trump remains the clear frontrunner in Iowa, according to the latest polls. Much of the U.S. is dealing with extreme cold and or wintry weather. Windchill warnings and advisories are in effect from Montana to northern Pennsylvania. Winter storm warnings and winter weather advisories extend from Texas to New England. Congress has until Friday night to prevent a partial shutdown of the federal government. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and House Speaker Mike Johnson have unveiled legislation to fund the government into March. Schumer says he hopes to see the Senate vote on the proposal as early as tomorrow. President Biden is traveling to Pennsylvania today to mark the federal holiday honoring Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The president will visit a food bank in Philadelphia. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Milton residents will vote next month on a new town zoning policy. The new land use rules will bring Milton in line with the new state law requiring communities served by the MBTA to allow denser housing. The Boston Globe reports town leaders approved the plan last month. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is not giving up on her effort to implement rent control in the city. The city is asking the state for permission to cap rent increases on apartments. State lawmakers have yet to act on Boston's home rule petition. Wu tells WCVBs on the record her administration needs time to create new affordable housing. Rent control isn't a silver bullet. It doesn't fix the housing crisis, but it does play a really important role in helping people just hang on to their homes while we are doing everything we can on the other front. Wu says she told Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen last week that higher interest rates are hurting housing development. People in Watertown are now required to shovel the sidewalks in front of their homes. The city council passed the new rule last week. Homeowners have 24 hours to clear the walks once a storm ends. People who don't may face fines starting at $50 on their second violation. But Watertown officials tell the Boston Herald that no fines will be imposed, at least for the rest of this winter, due to a lack of staff. But the city will respond to individual complaints. A reminder that many places are closed today in observance of the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. That includes all municipal buildings and the Boston City Hall. The T's subway and buses are running on a Saturday schedule. The commuter rail and ferry are on a weekday schedule. And if you're driving, you don't have to pay the meter to park your car. It's 8:33. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Explo, part magic, part summer enrichment program for curious kids and teens. 
For dates and campuses, visit explo.org slash summer. The Bruins will hit home ice this afternoon to take on the New Jersey Devils. The game gets underway at 1 p.m. Celtics are on the road tonight in Toronto. They'll play the Raptors starting at 7.30. A mostly sunny day today will have highs around freezing. More clouds move in tonight as temperatures fall to the mid-20s. A chance of snow overnight and snow is likely tomorrow. Highs Tuesday will be in the mid-30s, so the snow may be mixed with rain in the afternoon. In all, we may see up to 2 inches in Boston. Areas in Central and northern Mass may see up to three inches. Less than an inch is expected for the Cape. It's 23 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Leila Faldin in Washington, D.C. The Department of Homeland Security says Texas is responsible for the drowning of a woman and two children in the Rio Grande along the U.S.-Mexico border. The department says the state blocked federal border patrol agents from accessing a park in Eagle Pass, Texas on Friday night. The agents were trying to rescue migrants in distress who were crossing the river. It's the latest spat in a growing feud between the state and federal authorities over access to the border. Joining us now to talk about the latest is Texas Public Radio's Dan Katz. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me. So federal border patrol agents accusing Texas of being responsible for these deaths. What's the state's response? Well, as with everything, there's a dispute over the facts, but let's start with what's not in dispute. Mm -hmm. The state did, in fact, block the Border Patrol from accessing this area. It's part of an escalating standoff between Governor Greg Abbott and the Biden administration over who controls the border. Abbott essentially took control of the 47-acre Shelby Park on the Rio Grande, which is owned by the city of Eagle Pass. It's been a hot spot for migrant crossings, although lately the numbers have been down. As far as Texas's culpability in the droughtings, that's the dispute. Last night, the Texas Military Department released a statement pointing out that the migrant women and two children had already drowned by the time Border Patrol reached out to them about performing a rescue operation. So tell us more about the circumstances that night that led to these drownings. What do we know? So we know that Border Patrol got a call from Mexican authorities warning them that a group of migrants was attempting to cross the river. Nighttime is always dangerous, and it's been particularly cold here. People can drown in just minutes. And the Border Patrol says it tried repeatedly to call Texas officials about the possible rescue. And when that didn't work, they drove to the shuttered park gates and were told by Texas National Guard soldiers at the gate that they couldn't let anyone in, including them. Even in the case of an emergency like this, Mexican officials recovered the bodies of the woman and the two children on Friday night and rescued two others in the group who were suffering from hypothermia. The Justice Department has filed two lawsuits against the state of Texas over Abbott's border policies. How does this latest incident fit into this legal fight? Well, the Biden administration is threatening a third lawsuit if Border Patrol isn't given access to the park by end of day Wednesday. They've also asked the Supreme Court to intervene. 
The other suits involve the buoys that Abbott placed in the Rio Grande and Eagle Pass and a new law that Abbott signed that would allow Texas law enforcement to arrest anyone they suspect of crossing illegally. Of course, immigration enforcement is federal. There's precedent that it's not under the purview of states, but that's what Abbott's trying to challenge here. So these lawsuits are going to make their way through the legal system. Uh, Some Texas Democrats are saying there needs to be more immediate steps from the president. Can you talk about that? Yeah, Congressman Joaquin Castro is pushing for the president to federalize the Texas National Guard. Castro has criticized Abbott for politicizing the Guard in this effort. It's clear that Greg Abbott is trying to use them to interfere with the enforcement of United States law. And there's no indication that Abbott will back down in his effort, and we'll see if the White House takes that route. That was Texas Public Radio's Dan Katz. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. In Taiwan, an election over the weekend sent a clear message to Beijing that the island wants to remain independent and democratic. It was a historic third consecutive victory for the Democratic Progressive Party, which has a history of resistance to China's attempts to impose its will on Taiwan. Now, shortly after the results came in, China made its disappointment and intentions clear with a simple statement, quote, Taiwan is part of China. What China intends to do about it will become more clear in the coming days and weeks. Bob Wong is a senior associate at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. He studies the China-Taiwan dynamic. Bob, as a matter of self-interest, should the U.S. be applauding this moment for democracy or maybe keeping a a more neutral stance? I think the United States has clearly shown its uh, very strong uh, support for the democracy with Lincoln's statement. Secretary of State Blinken's statement, and uh, so it is applauding it, and it's sending a delegation, uh, which is a non-official delegation, of uh, high-level former officials to Taiwan to meet with President-elect Lai Ching-de, and uh, as well as all the other um, political leaders in Taiwan. So I think it's shown, uh, I think, a strong enthusiasm for the flourishing of democracy in Taiwan. How strong could it be, though, if it's unofficial? Well, because uh, this is the historical sort of tie that we have. We don't, we don't have an official diplomatic tie with Taiwan. We do have uh, unofficial ties. Uh, the American Institute in Taiwan, AIT, is uh, technically unofficial. So it is, we don't, we're not treating Taiwan as uh, basically an independent with diplomatic relations with the United States. That's just a historical fact. So what should we make when President Biden in response to the election says, quote, we do not support independence? Well, uh, it's, he's only stating what is, in fact, uh, the case. Okay. I think the, the, the question, obviously, is, you know, it, it does seem a little strange because Taiwan is de facto working as a you know, government and, and uh, independent in that sense. But obviously, Biden's statement is meant to carry on a historical position to avoid a conflict, a major conflict with China over this issue. And I think uh, generally the, the Biden administration, the U.S. in general, believes that uh, what is good for Taiwan is to maintain its current way of life, freedom, democracy, and all that, without a major conflict. And that's the realistic position, I think, that's been taken by the United States over the last, uh, you know, since 1979. How sustainable, Bob, is that long term, though? I know that, I guess, technically right now, if nothing happens, nothing bad can happen. But, I mean, how long can that last? Well, nobody really knows. Obviously, a lot depends on China, on Beijing, and see what it does. 
But I think at this point, I think it's fairly clear to most people that a major conflict across the strait uh, in that region with regard to Taiwan would be disastrous for China as well, for its economy, for its uh, with political consequences, for its leaders. So I think it could it could last some time, because it is it would be a uh, you know a major blow to to China to have a conflict as well, not just to Taiwan or the United States, but also to China. So what's at risk then for the United States in economic terms if relations between these two key economic partners deteriorates further? Well, I think the uh, the risk for the United States is that obviously. A lot of the trade investment ties with China will uh, slow down and, of course, have an impact on the United States. But at the same time, I think it's not good for China. So I think eventually they'll work out something where both sides will be able to restore uh, at least economic trade ties to a more normal level. Bob Wong is a senior associate at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Bob, thank you. You're welcome. Take care. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes on WBUR, it's the Marketplace Morning Report. It marks Martin Luther King Jr. Day by remembering Dr. King's support for striking sanitation workers in Memphis and by looking at what's happened with union membership in the years since his death. Partly cloudy and low 30s today. It falls to the mid-20s tonight, and we may see a little snow overnight. Snow is likely tomorrow, and highs in the mid-30s mean it might be mixed with rain in the afternoon. We're expected to get up to 2 inches of accumulation in Boston. Central Mass may see up to 3 inches, up to an inch on the Cape. It's 23 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. Embrace Boston is set to become an independent nonprofit. The organization says it plans to step out from under the Boston Foundation. The move comes after the unveiling of the Embrace statue on Boston Common last year. Rhode Island-based pharmacy giant CVS plans to close some of its pharmacies in Target stores. CVS tells the Boston Business Journal that's because fewer people are getting their prescriptions at those locations. The closures will come between February and April of this year. It's unclear how many stores will close. An igloo bar at Sunday River in Maine is the first of its kind in the U.S. Officials tell Boston.com the Alpen igloo was previously exclusive to European resorts. The igloo is only accessible by a ski trail. It's open Friday through Monday. It's 844. A new Texas law going into effect soon will ban rules guaranteeing water breaks for outdoor workers. A lot of folks have asked me, how could it be that there aren't actual laws guaranteeing people the right to come off of a scaffold and get a drink of water? I'm Elsa Chang, why Texans are pushing for federal standards that protect workers from the heat. On All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again after 4 today on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. 
kaufman.org. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. All over the U.S. today, groups will gather for community service projects to honor the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. But many familiar with King's life and work say one day of service doesn't do him justice. Here's Esther Yoon-Ji King of member station WBEZ. Last Wednesday, Theodore Herzl Elementary School on Chicago's west side was abuzz with volunteers. Good morning. Good morning. Today is Wednesday, January 10th, and we live to serve another day. And that's a beautiful thing. Herzl School is mere blocks from where King temporarily lived and worked on housing and segregation issues in 1966. And volunteers were here preparing for a school beautification project. Ebony Clincy is a member of AmeriCorps, a federal volunteerism agency. She designed some of the murals that were due to be painted throughout the school. All over the school, first, second, and third floor, you'll see different murals, different designs, all correlated to the school's mission. Generally, it'll bring some joy to the kids. Inclement weather forced organizers to cancel the mural painting event, but it was among many service projects planned throughout the U.S. for Martin Luther King Jr. Day in what's come to be known as a day on, not a day off. That's been the case since the mid-1990s, when Congress designated King's birthday as a national day of service. There were those who were determined that it not become the typical commercialized American holiday. That's Reverend Frederick Haynes. He leads the civil rights group Rainbow Push Coalition. He says those who were close to King, including his late widow, Coretta Scott King, and the late Congressman John Lewis, wanted to ensure the day did not turn into one where Americans just go shopping. But over time... We have dumbed down the legacy of Dr. King by calling it a day of service, then comforting our conscience with shots of persons who are cleaning up, feeding the hungry, doing nice things. Nice things that should not be diminished, he says, but don't fully honor King's vision. We still have an immigration policy that is broken. We still have what is raging over in Gaza. Nothing has changed because we are so caught up in doing something nice for a moment that we don't deal with changing the world for a lifetime. Lerone Martin leads Stanford University's Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute. If we're to engage in service and the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr., I think first and foremost, we have to know that legacy. He says MLK's ideas were, and still are, considered radical. For example, his unpopular stance against the Vietnam War, his support for a universal basic income, and his view that racism hurts both victims and perpetrators alike. Many people saw his ideas as dangerous. And I think there's been a deliberate effort by some to take some of his words out of context and try to bend them towards the status quo. Martin says the day of service should contribute to dismantling what MLK called the three evils of society. Racism, poverty, and war. He says taking part in a community cleanup or volunteering at a soup kitchen does reflect part of King's ideals, but learning about his beliefs and activism throughout the year are needed as well. 
For NPR News, I'm Esther Yunji Kang in Chicago. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Martinez. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour with comments from Israel's prime minister about his government's effort to destroy Hamas 100 days after attacks by the militant group on October 7th. It's 8.49. A new Texas law going into effect soon will ban rules guaranteeing water breaks for outdoor workers. A lot of folks have asked me, how could it be that there aren't actual laws guaranteeing people the right to come off of a scaffold and get a drink of water. I'm Elsa Chang, why Texans are pushing for federal standards that protect workers from the heat. On All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. The Republican presidential nominating process will officially start tonight in Iowa with voters braving dangerously cold temperatures to caucus. Congressional leaders have unveiled a stopgap funding measure to avert a partial government shutdown before a deadline at the end of the week. And a winter storm is moving across most of the country this week, bringing snow and freezing temperatures. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Medical Center, modeling a new kind of excellence in healthcare built on clinical expertise and equity. Learn more about rewriting healthcare at bmc.org. And Bridgewater State University, ranked 18th in Massachusetts on the Wall Street Journal's 2024 Best Colleges in America list. Bridgew.edu. Low 30s and mostly sunny today, mid 20s and overcast tonight with a chance of snow starting after midnight. Mid 30s tomorrow and snow is likely. It might be mixed with rain in the afternoon. We may get an inch or two in Boston and up to three inches to the north and west. Less than an inch is expected for the Cape. It's 24 degrees in Boston. The State of the Unions. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Deloitte. Unlocking innovation takes more than AI or cloud. It takes outcome-focused application, too. Learn more at Deloitte.com slash US slash Engineering Advantage. And by UiPath. More than 10,000 organizations use the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform to put AI to work. UiPath.com slash Marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore, in for David Brancaccio. U.S. markets are closed today in honor of civil rights icon Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. Markets reopen tomorrow, Tuesday, 9.30 a.m. Wall Street time. In 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated after speaking with striking sanitation workers in Memphis. In the decades since King's murder, strikes have gotten more rare. But data from Cornell University shows that over the last two years, strike activity has been picking up. Marketplace's Justin Ho has more. A lot of the big strikes last year were against big employers, Hollywood studios, the big three automakers. But Kathy Creighton at Cornell University says many of them were against smaller employers. Restaurants, higher education, warehouse workers, a lot of teachers and public sector workers. And those workers watched last year as the big strikes won big concessions from studios and automakers. 
Jake Rosenfeld, a professor at Washington University in St. Louis, says those wins create momentum. We know from past research that successful strikes prove contagious. They tend to lead to other strikes. Workers know that going on strike comes with the risk of job loss. But Rosenfeld says they also know they have options, considering how tight the labor market is right now. It grants them the freedom to take risks at work, such as participating in a strike or threatening to unionize, without the fear that such activity could lead to a prolonged period of joblessness. And as long as the unemployment rate stays low, Rosenfeld says strike activity will likely keep up. I'm Justin Ho for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive. Progressive Commercial Auto Insurance protects the cars, trucks, and vans that work to keep small businesses moving forward, including protection while running errands and other tasks. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And by C3 Generative AI. Verified, traceable answers. Secure, hallucination-free, LLM agnostic, IP liability-free. Learn more at C3.ai. And by Odoo, focused on providing all-in-one open-source business management software with fully integrated applications for every business need. More at odoo.com. Workers have had it okay in recent years. Some 2.7 million jobs were created last year, and the unemployment rate never rose above 4%, which is all the more impressive when you take into account that in the four decades before 2020, worker gains, in particular on wages, were limited, if not anemic. Many factors have been at work there, but some economists suspect one issue has been employment restrictions, as in non-compete agreements. They make it harder to take a new job and thereby get a raise. These agreements are illegal for a lot of jobs in some states, but still legal in many other states. Marketplace senior economics contributor Chris Farrell read through the literature on this and joined Marketplace Morning Report host David Brancaccio to share more. Here's David. I once had a non-compete clause in a minimum wage job. These are about you can't leave and work for a competitor for a period of time, right? Right. And these restrictive non-competes, you know, it varies a lot by state. And there really isn't a comprehensive data set on non-competes, but the estimates range between 18% and 40% of the American workforce is impacted by these agreements. And they typically involve, you know, high-skill, high-wage professionals like, uh, what, financiers software engineers, but they have become surprisingly widespread in lower wage industries. That's the experience that you had. Hairstylists, office cleaners. This is according to a report by the Federal Reserve Bank in Minneapolis. We've reported on the Federal Trade Commission in Washington is actively working to try to regulate many or most of these non-competes out of existence. Yes. And so California, North Dakota, Oklahoma, you know, they essentially have bans on non-competes. Colorado and Minnesota have now joined the movement. And other states haven't gone quite that far, David. But, you know, it seems like most are creating new restrictions. What do we know about the impact that non-compete limits have on workers? Okay, so there's a recent study, three economists, the labor market effects of legal restrictions on worker mobility. And they find that increases in non-compete enforceability that decreased workers' earnings and mobility from 1991 to 2014. And did they detect a big hit? It is significant. I mean, they calculate that if a state moves from the 25th percentile to the 75th percentile in terms of enforcing non-competes, workers see a 1.7% average decline in annual earnings. And they say making non-competes unenforceable nationwide 
could boost average earnings among all workers by 3.2% to 14.2%. Now, employers, businesses, worry about trade secrets and the training that they invested in their workers, and they many have been lobbying hard or suing to keep the non-compete arrangements. Yeah, it does still appear that the tide is turning. And see what you think of this idea, David. Besides helping workers, an additional factor that is providing momentum to the anti-non-compete initiatives is the suspicion that it could be a real boon to innovation. There's a series of fascinating studies that were done years ago looking into high-tech innovation. And these studies have argued that California's long-term ban on non-competes, that helps Silicon Valley become the epicenter of high-tech entrepreneurship. In comparison, take a competitor, Boston's high-tech corridor, Route 128. Well, it fell short early on, perhaps because Massachusetts allowed businesses to limit employee mobility. Marketplace's senior economics contributor, Chris Farrell, thank you. Thanks a lot, David. Over the last year, the Biden administration has announced steps geared at making credit more available to minority business owners. The timing, though, has been tricky. Rising interest rates have been making credit more expensive for all borrowers. And last year's banking debacle caused a lot of lenders to pull back on loan making altogether. Today on our afternoon sister program, Marketplace, they'll talk with bankers, experts, and a small business about whether the Biden administration's efforts to help minority business owners get loans are running into trouble thanks to the current lending environment. Listen to Marketplace on your local public radio station or at Marketplace.org. In New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. Temperatures only around freezing today under skies with a mix of sun and clouds. Mid-20s tonight and overcast with snow possible overnight. Mid-30s tomorrow with snow likely. And it may be mixed with rain in the afternoon and evening. Boston may see 1 to 2 inches. It's 24 degrees in Boston and the BBC News Hour is coming up next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums. With over 50 galleries of art spanning the centuries... Free admission every day. Open Tuesday through Sunday. HarvardArtMuseums.org. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.